You're listening to In-Depth Out Loud, a podcast from The Conversation UK, where we read you long-form articles written by academic experts. Anti-Semitism, how the origins of history's oldest hatred still hold sway today. Written by Gervais Phillips, Principal Lecturer in History at Manchester Metropolitan University. Anti-Semitic incidents are on the rise across the globe. To understand this modern hatred, we need to look into the past and understand its origins. Read by Annabel Bly. Anti-Semitism is on the march. From the far-right demonstrators in Charlottesville, Virginia, with their blood and soil chants, and their Jews will not replace us placards, to attacks on synagogues in Sweden, arson attacks on kosher restaurants in France, and a spike in hate crimes against Jews in the UK. Anti-Semitism seems to have been given a new lease of life. The seemingly endless conflicts in the Middle East have made the problem worse, as they spawn divisive domestic politics in the West. But can the advance of anti-Semitism be attributed to the rise of right-wing populism, or the influence of Islamic fundamentalism? One thing is clear. Anti-Semitism is here, and it's getting worse. Anti-Semitism rears its ugly head in every aspect of public life, whether internal debates within political parties or accusations of conspiratorial networks or plots in politics and business, or even in the accusations that Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein's sexually predatory behaviour was somehow linked to his Jewish origins. But by focusing narrowly on the contemporary context of modern anti-Semitism, we miss a central, if deeply depressing, reality. Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor of The Atlantic magazine, puts it correctly when he says that what we are seeing is an ancient and deeply embedded hostility towards Jews that is re-emerging as the barbarous events of World War II recede from our collective memory. Goldberg says that for 70 years, in the shadow of the death camps, anti-Semitism was culturally, politically and intellectually unacceptable. But now we are witnessing the denouement of the unusual epoch in European life, the age of the post-Holocaust Jewish dispensation. Without an understanding of anti-Semitism's ancient roots, the dark significance of this current trend may not be fully understood, and hatred may sway popular opinion unchallenged. Anti-Semitism has been called history's oldest hatred, and it has shown itself to be remarkably adaptable. It is carved from, and sustained by, powerful precedents and inherited stereotypes. But it is also taking on variant forms to reflect the contingent fears and anxieties of an ever-changing world. Understood this way, it is the modern manifestation of an ancient prejudice. One which some scholars believe stretches back to antiquity and medieval times. The word anti-Semitism was popularised by the German journalist Wilhelm Marr. His polemic, Der Sieg des Judentums über das Germentum, The Victory of Jury over Germandom, was published in 1879. Outwardly, Marr was a thoroughly secular man of the modern world. He explicitly rejected the groundless but ancient Christian allegations long made against the Jews, such as deicide, or that Jews engaged in the ritual murder of Christian children. Instead, 
he drew on the fashionable theories of the French academic Ernest Renan, who viewed history as a world-shaping contest between Jewish Semites and Aryan Indo-Europeans. Ma suggested that the Jewish threat to Germany was racial. He said that it was born of their immutable and destructive nature, their tribal peculiarities and alien essence. Anti-Semites like Ma strove for intellectual respectability by denying any connection between their own modern, secular ideology and the irrational, superstitious bigotry of the past. It is a tactic which is employed by some contemporary anti-Semites who align themselves with anti-Zionism, an ideology whose precise definition consequently excites considerable controversy. But this continuing hostility towards Jews from pre-modern to modern times has been manifest to many. The American historian Joshua Trachtenberg, writing during World War II, noted, Modern so-called scientific anti-Semitism is not an invention of Hitler's. It has flourished primarily in Central and Eastern Europe, where medieval ideas and conditions have persisted until this day, and where the medieval conception of the Jew, which underlies the prevailing emotional antipathy toward him, was and still is deeply rooted. In fact, up until the Holocaust, anti-Semitism flourished just as much in Western Europe as in Central or Eastern Europe. Consider, for example, how French society was bitterly divided between 1894 to 1906, after the Jewish army officer, Captain Alfred Dreyfus, was falsely accused and convicted of spying for Germany. It saw conservatives squaring up against liberals and socialists, Catholics against Jews. Yet Trachtenberg was undoubtedly correct in suggesting that many of those who shaped modern anti-Semitism were profoundly influenced by the older, medieval tradition of religious bigotry. The Russian editor of the infamous Protocols of Zion, a crude and ugly but tragically influential forgery alleging a Jewish world conspiracy, was the political reactionary, ultra-orthodox and self-styled mystic Sergei Nilus. Nilus was wrought by fear and hatred of the challenges that modernity posed to traditional religion, social hierarchies and culture. He was convinced that the coming of the Antichrist was imminent and that those who failed to believe in the existence of the elders of Zion were simply the dupes of Satan's greatest ruse. So modern anti-Semitism cannot be easily separated from its pre-modern antecedents. As the Catholic theologian Rosemary Ruther observed, the mythical Jew, who is the eternal conspiratorial enemy of Christian faith, spirituality and redemption, was shaped to serve as the scapegoat for the ills of secular industrial society. Some scholars would look to the pre-Christian world and see in the attitudes of ancient Greeks and Romans the origins of an enduring hostility. Religious studies scholar Peter Schaeffer believes the exclusive nature of the monotheistic Jewish faith, the apparent haughty sense of being a chosen people, a refusal to intermarry, a Sabbath observance and the practice of circumcision were all things that marked Jews out in antiquity for a particular odium. Finding examples of hostility towards Jews in classical sources is not difficult. The politician and lawyer Cicero, of 106-43 BC, once reminded a jury of the odium of Jewish gold and how they stick together and are 
influential in informal assemblies. The Roman historian Tacitus, of around 56 to 120 AD, was contemptuous of base and abominable Jewish customs, and was deeply disturbed by those of his compatriots who had renounced their ancestral gods and converted to Judaism. The Roman poet and satirist Juvenal, of around 55 to 130 AD, shared his disgust at the behaviour of converts to Judaism, besides denouncing Jews generally as drunken and rowdy. These few examples may point towards the existence of anti-Semitism in antiquity, but there is little reason to believe that Jews were the objects of a specific prejudice beyond the generalised contempt that both Greeks and Romans exhibited towards barbarians, especially conquered and colonised peoples. Juvenal was every bit as rude about Greeks and other foreigners in Rome as he was about Jews. He complained bitterly, I cannot stand a Greek city of Rome. And yet, what part of the dregs comes from Greece? Once the full extent of Juvenal's prejudice has been recognised, his snide remarks about Jews might be understood as being more indicative of an altogether more sweeping xenophobia. It is in the theology of early Christians that we find the clearest foundations of anti-Semitism. The adversus Judeos, arguments against the Jews' tradition, was established early in the religion's history. Sometime around 140 AD, the Christian apologist Justin Martyr was teaching in Rome. In his most celebrated work, Dialogue with Trifo the Jew, Justin strove to answer Trifo when he pointed to the contradictory position of Christians who claimed to accept Jewish scripture but refused to follow Torah, the Jewish law. Justin responded that the demands of Jewish law were meant only for Jews as a punishment from God. Although still accepting the possibility of Jewish salvation, he argued that the old covenant was finished, telling Trifo, you ought to understand that the gifts of God's favour, formerly among your nation, have been transferred to us. Yet Justin's concern was not really with Jews, it was with his fellow Christians. At a time when the distinction between Judaism and Christianity was still blurred, and rival sects competed for adherence, he was striving to prevent Gentile converts to Christianity from observing the Torah, lest they go over wholly to Judaism. Vilifying Jews was a central part of Justin's rhetorical strategy. He alleged that they were guilty of persecuting Christians, and had done so ever since they had killed the Christ. It was an ugly charge, soon levelled again in the works of other church fathers, such as Tertullian, of around 160 to 225 AD. He referred to the synagogues of the Jews as fountains of persecution. The objective of using such invective was to settle internal debates within Christian congregations. The Jews in these writings were symbolic. The allegations did not reflect the actual behaviour or beliefs of Jews. When Tertullian attempted to refute the dualistic teachings of the Christian heretic Marcion of around 144 AD, he needed to demonstrate that the vengeful God of the Old Testament was indeed the same merciful and compassionate God of the Christian New Testament. He achieved this by presenting the Jews as especially wicked and especially deserving of righteous anger, 
It was thus, Tertullian argued, that Jewish behaviours and Jewish sins explain the contrast between the Old and the New Testament. To demonstrate this peculiar malevolence, Tertullian portrayed Jews as denying the prophets, rejecting Jesus, persecuting Christians and as rebels against God. These stereotypes shaped Christian attitudes towards Jews from late antiquity into the medieval period, leaving Jewish communities vulnerable to periodic outbreaks of persecution. These ranged from massacres, such as York in 1190, to ethnic cleansing, as seen in the expulsions from England in 1290, France in 1306, and Spain in 1492. Although it was real people who often suffered as a result of this ugly prejudice, anti-Semitism as a concept largely owes its longevity to its symbolic and rhetorical power. American historian David Nirenberg concludes that anti-Judaism was a tool that could be usefully deployed to almost any problem, a weapon that could be deployed on almost any front. And this weapon has been wielded to devastating effect for centuries. When Martin Luther thundered against the papacy in 1543, he denounced the Roman Church as the devil's synagogue and Catholic orthodoxy as Jewish in its greed and materialism. In 1790, the Anglo-Irish conservative Edmund Burke published his manifesto, Reflections on the Revolution in France, and condemned the revolutionaries as Jew brokers and old Jewry. Despite Karl Marx's Jewish ancestry, Marxism was tainted at its very birth by anti-Semitism. In 1843, Karl Marx identified modern capitalism as the result of the Judaizing of the Christian. He wrote, The Jew has emancipated himself in a Jewish manner, not only annexing the power of money, but also through him and also apart from him, money has become a world power and the practical spirit of the Jew has become the practical spirit of the Christian people. The Jews have emancipated themselves insofar as the Christians have become Jews. Money is the jealous God of Israel, before whom no other God may stand. The God of the Jews has been secularised and has become the God of the modern world. And there remain those today, from across the political spectrum, who are still ready to deploy what historian Nirenberg referred to as the most powerful language of opprobrium available in Western political discourse, commonly using the language of conspiracy, webs and networks. In 2002, the left-leaning magazine The New Statesman included articles by Dennis Sewell and John Pilger debating the existence of a pro-Israel lobby in Britain. Their articles, however, proved less controversial than the cover illustration chosen to introduce this theme. It drew on familiar tropes of secret Jewish machinations and dominance over national interests. A gold star of David resting on the Union Jack with the title, A Kosher Conspiracy. The following year, veteran Labour MP Tam Diel accused the then Prime Minister Tony Blair of being unduly influenced by a cabal of Jewish advisers. This kind of language continues today. On the far right white supremacists have been quick to project their own time-honoured fantasies of Jewish malfeasance and power onto contemporary events, however seemingly irrelevant. This was quickly apparent in August 2017, when the future of memorials that glorified those who had rebelled against the Union and defended slavery during America's Civil War became the focus of intense debate in the United States. At Charlottesville, Virginia, 
demonstrators protesting against the removal of a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee, began chanting, Jews will not replace us. When journalist Elspeth Reeve asked one why, he replied that the city was run by Jewish communists. And when accusations of serious sexual misconduct by Weinstein were published by the New York Times in October 2017, he was quickly cast by the far right as a representative of the eternal conspiratorial enemy of American society as a whole. David Duke, former head of the KKK, would write on his website that the Harvey Weinstein story is a case study in the corrosive nature of Jewish domination of our media and cultural industries. Responding to such language, The Atlantic's Emma Green astutely commented on how the durability of anti-Semitic tropes and the ease with which they slide into all displays of bigotry is a chilling reminder that the hatreds of our time rhyme with history and are easily channeled through timeless anti-Semitic canards. There is a real danger here, as the spike in anti-Semitic hate crimes shows. This peculiar way of thinking about the world has always retained the potential to turn hatred of symbolic Jews into the very real persecution of actual Jews. Given the marked escalation of anti-Semitic incidents recorded in 2017, we are now faced with the unsettling prospect that this bigotry is becoming normalised. For example, the European Jewish Congress expressed grave concerns over an increase in anti-Semitic acts in Poland under the right-wing law and justice government, which won the 2015 parliamentary election with an outright majority. The group said the government was closing communications with the official representatives of the Jewish community, and there was a proliferation of fascist slogans and unsettling remarks on social media and television, as well as the display of flags of the nationalist group at state ceremonies. In response to these fears, a survey investigating anti-Semitism within the European Union will be undertaken in 2018, led by the European Union Agency for Fundamental Rights. The agency's director, Michael O'Flaherty, commented correctly that anti-Semitism remains a grave worry across Europe, despite repeated efforts to stamp out these age-old prejudices. Given the phenomenon's deep historical roots and its epoch-defying capacity for reinvention, it would be easy to be pessimistic about the prospect of another effort to stamp it out. But historical awareness of the nature of anti-Semitism may prove a powerful ally for those who would challenge prejudice. The ancient tropes and slights may cloak themselves in modern garb, but even softly spoken allegations of conspiratorial lobbies and cabals should be recognised for what they are the mobilisation of an ancient language and ideology of hate for which there should be no place in our time. You've been listening to In-Depth Out Loud from The Conversation. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give us a review wherever you get your podcasts from. You should also check out our other podcast, The Anthill, where we unearth stories from the world of academia around a different theme each month. The latest episode is all about the Good Friday Agreement. Here's a taster. The whole thrust of the Good Friday Agreement was that the border was being taken out of everyday political argument. The idea was that we could park the border question 
and get on with sort of living together. The, the problem is that Brexit sort of reinserts the border into politics in Northern Ireland. It churns up the consensus that has underpinned the agreement for the last 20 years. To read more insight and analysis from academic experts and the text version of this article, go to theconversation.com.